Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, where you'll get actionable tips and advice on major gifts, direct response fundraising, legacy giving, and much more from leading experts in the nonprofit sector. Now, here are your hosts of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, Andrew Olson and Roy Jones. Before we jump into today's content, I have something I want to share with you. In a recent 2019 CEO benchmark study conducted by the Predictive Index, CEOs disclosed that four out of five top challenges they face relate to talent optimization. To win consistently, you need confidence. Confidence that you've got the right people in the right roles, that they're deployed around the right projects, and that those projects are mapped to the right organizational objectives. And you need more than gut level confidence. You need data to back that up. But the truth is, the rapid pace of change is exhausting. People and systems are being pushed to the edge, and diversity, equality, and inclusion issues remain unresolved. In this age of empathy, we can do better. That's why I'm super excited about a new talent optimization platform that Ben Straup, founder of Velocity Strategy Solutions and a certified partner with the Predictive Index, is ready to show you. This technology-enabled, data-driven platform will give you an unfair advantage so you can win and succeed more. Visit peoplegetresults.com and use the code RAINMAKER to schedule your free personalized assessment and demo today. That's peoplegetresults.com, and don't forget to use the code RAINMAKER today. Hey, welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. This is Andrew Olson. I'm here with uh, my good friend and colleague, Roy Jones. Roy, how are you this morning? Very good. It's going to be a fun time. This time of year, I love talking to people uh, like Kurt Peterson. Uh, this is going to be a great conversation, especially looking at asset management and year-end time. And it's now time to, to think about year-end giving. So I'm excited about today. Yeah, so am I. So uh, we are here with Kurt Peterson. Kurt is the uh, first vice president of investments at Wells Fargo Advisors in the Woodbury, Minnesota area. He's a certified financial planner, a chartered retirement planning counselor. He's an accredited asset management specialist. That's a whole lot of words. Kurt will explain what all of that means. He's also a family man, an accomplished athlete, and my former sparring partner. Um, <laughs> we, we have kickboxed quite a bit together, although because of COVID and other things, it's been almost a year. So Kurt, it's really good to see you. Welcome to the show. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Andrew, right? Yes, Andrew has a lethal roundhouse kick. I remember those days back in the good old kickboxing days. So You know, I, I'm not the one who routinely knocks the bag down with his roundhouse kick, so we'll just leave that right there. <laughs> you were good. You were good. So, well, th thanks again for having me on, guys. So, yes, I've got, a, I've got an alphabet soup after my name. So there's a lot of things that make up those certifications. Ultimately, we work with people. So I work with clients. Um, some of them are very charitable. Some of them, you know, they don't give. And maybe they'd like to, they'd like to understand a little bit more about ways they could give, maybe from a tax standpoint to be a little bit more strategic, even if they wanted to be a little bit more efficient from an estate planning standpoint. So I kind of think of myself as really kind of a problem solver. Clients may not know necessarily how to get a, a solution. Maybe they want to just put their kids through college or make sure that they don't run out of money in retirement. And Google is great. So you can Google anything out there, but ultimately I think what we bring to the table is experience of working with clients and helping them find solutions or multiple solutions to those problems. So in a nutshell, that would be what I do day in and day out with clients. Awesome. So Kurt, you and I struck up a conversation to plan this podcast episode because you had shared on LinkedIn a Wells Fargo year-end planning guide. 
And we'll link to that in the show notes for this episode. But that prompted us to start talking about, you know, sort of year-end planning, not just from the individual financial planning side of things, but what does it mean for charitable giving and those kind of things? So I, I want to get into some questions around that right now. And, and a couple that might be broader questions. And one, uh, which I was prepping you for before the show, is a conversation that we often have, Roy and I, with, with nonprofit leaders across the country. You know, you work with people who, you know, maybe they would say that they're of modest means, and you probably work with some, some folks who are of significant wealth. One of the things that we hear quite regularly is that as clients like yours think about philanthropy and about how they want to maybe make an impact charitably in their community, there's always a question of like, what's the experience that those individuals have with the nonprofits they engage with? And what do you, what do you hear from them just generally about that practice of, of giving and, and what they feel like the challenges might be, what works well for them? I just love to hear what you hear from a different perspective because you're not a fundraiser. You're not in the nonprofit space. You're a trusted advisor to these uh, individuals. And I, I would guess you get a different perspective. Unfortunately, sometimes people segregate components of their wealth and their giving, and they kind of treat them separately. But what's nice, I believe, when you, when you do work with like a financial planner, they might provide a different lens and be able to show people that your, your giving and your philanthropy is directly connected to your wealth and you can actually be more efficient. So it's more the, um, you know, I work with clients on retirement income planning. I work with them on estate planning and helping them kind of be more efficient from a tax standpoint. So you kind of have to be able to ask the question, okay, have you ever thought about this? A good example, uh, real world, I had a client in the office last week and we were talking, she had just retired. She's 59 and, you know, she started mentioning her church and that she is giving regularly and pretty heavily to her church. And so I talked with her a little bit about her retirement income. And this is a client that has a pension and social security, but she also has a sizable retirement account and she's not even using it. And so I actually positioned an idea of using qualified charitable distributions. We refer to them as QCDs in my business. Mm -hmm where you can actually take from your IRA and direct transfer to the church or the entity that you are giving out of your income that's already being taxed. So effectively what we were able to have a conversation about is increasing her, her income because her charitable giving is now being accomplished by her IRA retirement account. Mm -hmm. So that would be one example. Probably another one, again, I'm talking about real world. This client has substantial wealth, you know, and he's in the later years of his retirement. And so they've got multiple kids and they want to maybe gift to those kids ultimately, you know, but they're looking at the end of life. But the problem that that client has right now is he has so much income and he's got retirement accounts that are distributing income to him as well too. And so he's trying to get his tax burden down He's basically just paying taxes. And so I proposed to him an idea of a charitable lead trust, CLT. And what that does is he's able to take these appreciated assets, put them into a trust, and then that trust pays annual income to the charities that he, he is giving out of his own income right now and not in a very tax efficient way. But then it also defers the taxes on his bracket basically until he passes and then that trust reverts back to the kids. 
beneficiary. Mm. Okay. So there's some things that we kind of need to educate clients about, and that might get to maybe some other questions on how you partner with maybe a financial planner, especially these nonprofits that I might recommend. Well, so that's a great point because I often, when I'm talking to organizations, uh, particularly about some of their, what they would call their major donors, you know, people of high net worth who give Mm -hmm. typically gifts, let's say in the $5,000 or larger single gift category, right? Um, Mm -hmm. One of the things that I will often hear is, you know, we're not necessarily comfortable bringing their financial planner in or or an attorney in because it creates extra work. You know, we might not be able to negotiate the deal that we're hoping to with this donor. But I I think from, from what you're saying, and I think from what Roy and I have both experienced, sometimes bringing that financial planner in alongside can make the relationship and the deal better for everybody because it helps those donors, those individuals, clients of yours, figure out solutions where they can accomplish their giving, but also do it in a way that's beneficial to them. Is that, is that what I hear you saying? I think exactly. Yep. I think you're right on, Andrew. So what would you recommend to an organization that maybe has never even had a conversation with financial planners? Like what's the way to start that and to, to make sure that you're talking to the right people in the community? One thing you could do is you could ask your donors, who do they use for a financial advisor? That would be a great way. And then probably try to find two or three financial planners in the local area because they've got clients that work in the local area too, or maybe that are full giving and they might be a good network to say, Hey, I, I know this advisor or I'm, I've got a client that they may be looking to be more charitable, but they just don't know who to give to. Mm. So, um, so I would say interview probably two to three local financial advisors and start to build a relationship, maybe have multiple interviews with them just to get a sense of their practice, who their clientele is, and maybe there might be some synergistic relationship there. Kurt, I have a question just, and, and I don't know if this can be put into a common uh, uh, finding. It may be unique to, the, to each individual donor. But is there a rhythm to how someone who is high net worth uh, plans their year-end giving? Does that happen in the spring? Does it happen at year-end only? Uh, talk to me about what you see when they look at their planning and, and asset management and how they intend to make that year-end gift. Well, sometimes it does happen early on in the beginning of the year. And you know, one of the things I talk about is kind of a giving plan with clients. So we actually incorporate in their financial plan, a giving plan and to show them how much income maybe they could gift or um, how much in assets they could reposition towards charitable giving. So that's actually a different process. But mm-hmm. to your question, unfortunately, if you go from kind of a knee jerk position of, hey, it's the end of the year, I need a gift or I need to reduce my tax burden for this year, that's not as effective And so maybe starting right around tax time when people are really conscious about their taxes and they're thinking, well, what can I do differently this year? That would be a really good time to start doing education to those donors. Here's some things to consider before the end year, end of the year, because now you've got eight, nine months to plan. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting uh, point. You know, the, so often we think that donors just give out of their checkbook uh, you know, their liquidity. And, mm-hmm. and these, these larger gifts, especially if it's a five-figure gift or bigger, uh, they're usually giving out of their assets. And sometimes that takes a, a little time to move around and get in the right mm-hmm. place to be able to help the charity. Right. And kind of knowing which assets are best to give is also a, a component there that people need to understand the, 
the tax implications there. How does that maybe, especially if they've got kids, they're wanting to leave money to the kids. What's the best asset to leave to the kids and how to do that? Mm. Yeah, it's kind of interesting to think, wow, so I need to make my year end ask at tax time in April. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. it's real. That's when it, it's real for the client. That really is uh, you know, a great message to, to those of us on the uh, nonprofit side. So often we wait till fourth quarter and expect right. to get a fourth quarter gift. And it's, you get gifts, but there's usually a zero or two are missing because you waited too late in the year. Right, exactly. Yeah, Kurt, I agree. Kurt, do, you, do you see any difference in how your clients plan their giving based on whether they are maybe, say, near or at retirement age versus if they are maybe younger uh, business owners or entrepreneurs? Do you see a, a, any significant difference in that? Yeah, I would say business owners end up being more about um, tax planning, and that can be that can be good in that they have up until usually October to with extension for their their business tax. But for individuals, especially retired folks, those ones you can actually get more. Um, you can develop more consistent donors because they've got consistent streams of income. And now they've got a burden maybe where they have to take money out of their retirement account. And it's best to do that systematically versus kind of at the end of the year, because I remember in 2018, in December, the market dropped 20%. And that wasn't a great time to sell things. Right. You know, (laughs) for sure. So I want to talk about something else that's come up in the last couple of years that we'd like to get your perspective on. It's actually even referenced in the planning guide that you shared. It's this idea of bunching contributions, mm-hmm. right? Now, you know, Roy will tell you, he and I both had conversations about this and we've had conversations with maybe a hundred different charities about it. There is a high level of concern in the nonprofit sector about consistency of giving particularly from donors who typically have given somewhere in the neighborhood collectively in a year of, you know, five or $7,000 in the past, wanting to now bunch their giving so that they can get a a tax benefit of it, but that that might mean that a donor doesn't give in a particular year where they used to give every year. Can you talk to Mm -hmm. us about the conversations that you're having with your clients around that and kind of what the, if there is a prevailing thinking uh, across the market of what that looks like right now? Yeah, I would say for our clients, bunching isn't a topic that is commonly used. I would say some of the younger, higher income individuals that maybe you've got both spouses working, they both make a, you know, a decent salary, they might look at bunching. But we're not seeing a ton of clients um, utilizing some of the vehicles out there, like donor advised funds is a strategy, and I'll talk about that, where people are using this idea of bunching and they're taking you know, 20 to 30,000 and they're funding a donor advised fund so that they get over that standard deduction for a couple. And then over the course of the next couple of years, they're distributing from that fund for their charitable purposes. And that's usually what I try to help people understand is that don't think of these donor advised funds as a set it and forget it. It's a way to be tax efficient, but also to make sure that you're at least taking distributions quarterly from these donor funds and directing them to your charities. So I don't know if that answers your question. I think it, it, it does, but it brings up another question. So okay. there's also a big push right now across the sector to try to force uh, the companies that manage donor advised funds 
to distribute more of that revenue more quickly, right? It came up around COVID. Mm -hmm. It got another spike around the George Floyd protests and people talking about making sure that more money's going into disadvantaged communities. And so mm -hmm. there, there's, there's been a lot of talk with Fidelity and Schwab and some others about you know, potentially federal regulation to force greater level of distribution mm -hmm. for donor advised funds. Can you talk a little bit about your perspective on, on that and just a little bit more about how you counsel your clients to, to think about their donor advised funds if they have them? Yeah, I think it's a real concern that yes, you've got people that they they like the idea of the you know the tax write off, but maybe the the real problem is in their heart of hearts. They're maybe not charitably minded, so they're utilizing it as a tax tool and not what it was intended to be. I would say most clients that I work with, and I wouldn't say there's a lot of people that use donor advised funds. It's maybe you know one or two percent of clients. Mm. Most of them use qualified charitable distributions okay. or uh, trust, you know, so it, it's a newer offering. We actually have one um, at my firm here that I use, but honestly, it's such a underutilized vehicle. But then when you do fund it, you kind of have to have a plan about it. Just like when you have a retirement account, you actually have to have almost, I agree, have a written plan about it. And then the one option that I like about donor advised funds is it something you can actually get the children of the donor advised funds owner to start to get onto this idea of legacy planning now? Because mm. um, there is a an option with an IRA, you can actually name the beneficiary a donor advised fund, and now the kids have kind of a little bit of a of a gifting legacy burden, and that they now need to come together and maybe if we can talk to those kids before that transaction happens, you can start saying, let's get excited about giving and let's maybe think of this as an endowment or a charity unto itself that we can now give and talk about actual entities, uh, nonprofits that you want to fund. And let's make a plan just like we do with a financial plan and, and kind of plan year by year what we're going to give out of that. Mm -hmm. That, that's actually really interesting. Roy, I know you and I have talked about this idea of, you know, how do you bridge the multi-generational gap when you've got a donor who's been incredibly generous to your charity, but you might not have a direct connection to their children. I don't know, have you ever, ever encountered this kind of thing on the ground, Roy? You do. And the challenge that all nonprofits are struggling with right now is donor advised funds being used for different purpose than they were designed. And mm -hmm. uh, even when we get gifts from donor advised funds, probably one out of four come in anonymous. So I have no way to thank the donor or even know who the donor is. And, and to me, uh, that's a real problem. You know, and again, uh, you know, I, I guess that is one of the benefits is you can give anonymously, but uh, mm -hmm. I, I always encourage donors not to do that. Mm -hmm. to be part of the stewardship process, to vet every donation they make, uh, to measure those charities based on impact, and to ensure that the nonprofit uh, uh, provides impact reports for those gifts. And I, I, I really do like to treat them as investments so that the donor sees the, the difference they're making. But yeah, that is, the, that is the challenge. And I think there really are a lot of people right now, especially in a presidential election year, I, I see it quite frequently, where these donor advised funds do become set it and forget it. 
You know, they yep. park, they get the donation at the time they park the money there and are waiting to see how things happen. And a lot of charities, uh, especially this year, are not going to be here next year because this money's locked away and not being put to a real philanthropic benefit. Right. I'm curious, um, you know, for the, the clients that you've experienced that use donor advised funds, you know, do, do you have much conversation with charities who reach out and say, hey, we, we got a contribution from, from a DAF from, from your company, but we don't know who it is. Can, you know, is there any way that we can find that out? Is that a common conversation? No, it's not. Unfortunately, yeah, just because of the the nature of the donor advised fund, they don't know who the advisor is. Oh, they, they don't, don't know, know that either. Really. Okay. Yeah, and you can actually designate that, like uh, Roy was saying, we can designate that gift to be anonymous, and I think that ends up being pretty common. So, yeah, there's a there's a, a really a gap for that charity then to say, okay, how do we now engage this donor? And we just don't have enough to do that sense. So I'm curious, you know, Roy brought up the presidential election. Obviously, this has been a significantly different yeah. kind of year than anybody would have expected it to be. I'm curious to get your insights based on what you're seeing with your clients. Like, how different do you think this year might be for charitable giving for people who do engage with, with financial planners like yourself? Do you see a different trend developing? Are you seeing behaviors change significantly? What, what should we know? Yeah, I, I would say, especially in times of uncertainty, people will tend to maintain more cash. So where they would typically direct that in giving, they're going to be holding more cash. And that comes back to the point of when a client or an individual that I work with, higher net worth, has more of a giving plan, especially if that's a stated goal that they have, you really kind of want to be able to engage a financial planner then to make sure that they know that they can freely give what they gave last year, and it's not going to really upset the whole financial plan. They're not going to run out of money just because they gave in 2020 in the midst of a pandemic. So I kind of encourage, again, have a giving plan just like you have a financial plan, and every high net worth client probably should have one. One thing I would probably add is the foundation behind a giving plan is what if you could show those high net worth clients that they could actually give more in true dollars away during their lifetime than they ever saved in a 401k or IRA. I think you'd have a very motivated giver at that point. So that would be my encouragement and something maybe might be more of an educational ask of these nonprofits to provide to their higher net worth donors. Yeah, you know, that's a great point. I mean, one of the things that we struggle with in our sector is that for, for as long as it's been tracked, which is about 40, 40 to 50 years now, charitable giving in the U.S. has hovered at about 2 to 2.2% of GDP. Hmm. So, so we are always having conversations about, you know, what is it going to take to unlock a greater level of generosity across the American public, right? And oftentimes people talk about, well, you got to pull the heartstrings, you got to tug the heartstrings, you got to tell good stories. I think that's true. But, you know, to your point, if more people were mindful about planning and, and were having conversations, particularly about how they might give out of their assets in a tax advantaged way, rather than just giving cash, like, you know, what I was talking about earlier, I wonder if we could move the needle on that. And it, when you think about it, you know, if, if you increased by just 10% every decade or something like that, I mean, over a, a long period of time, that could have a transformational impact on so many different causes. Mm -hmm. 
I'm curious to know, as you're talking to your clients and as you're hearing some of the conversations they might have with charities they support, how frequently is it that a charity will ask for an asset-based gift versus cash? Do you, do you hear that often? It doesn't happen, unfortunately. And, you know, I'm at a, a church and I've got, there's another CFP at my church and, and we've, I think, pushed them in that direction that we need to be more um, educating our people, our congregation about these different vehicles for giving that are more tax efficient, both for the giver and tax free for the benefit of the church or the, or the charity. That seems like a big problem to me. I don't think it's something we can solve on this podcast. But, right, yeah, uh, right, yeah. <laughs> you know, I just think there's, there's such a missed opportunity. And a lot of it, I think, falls on, on our shoulders as, as fundraisers that we probably aren't educated enough ourselves uh, around this topic and you know, have gotten in this habit of just always asking for, hoping for a quick yes. And a quick yes always comes out of the checkbook, right? But a checkbook's never going to be as big for most people as, as an asset gift. So I, you know, I, I yep. think we probably bring a lot of this onto ourselves. Well, and it's just like yesterday, I had a meeting with the supporter. He was considering uh, selling an office building that he owns and then donating the profits, of course, after capital gains taxes mm-hmm. to our nonprofit. And I said, please don't do that. Right. Exactly. <laughs> don't, donate the building. You can write off the appraised value and we'll flip it and can then use the proceeds. And uh, he had never thought about doing it that way and, and didn't realize, A, that he could avoid capital gains and get a big write-off that he can spread out over the next four or five years to offset his personal income. Yeah, it's kind of, you know, again, we don't know what we don't know, but it almost that that burden of educating our donors has to come from kind of the, the entities themselves. So that uh, that's really the ask, like, they could Google it, but really it's good. It's going to be best to live that message delivered from the, the charities themselves. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm almost, I'm thinking at this point, like, you know, what could a partnership look like between a nonprofit and someone like yourself where, you know, it's not about, Hey, can I talk to your clients about charitable giving for our organization? But can you come talk to our donors about how they can more effectively utilize their assets to support us since they already love us, but can we make it beneficial to them too? You know, I don't know if if a lot of organizations do that or not, but it seems like something that might be worthwhile. Yeah, I think you're right on. I don't think it happens. I really don't. Um, Just like when I bring somebody in, when I do a client educational event, I'll bring like somebody in from like the long-term care center to educate people on a topic that I don't probably know as much as they do Mm -hmm. on how to help maybe mom be able to have a comfortable, you know, last, you know, 10, 15 years of her life. So it's bringing in the resources. And a lot of times, I think when that happens, there's synergy that happens where maybe a client, uh, a donor has an advisor that's just retired, which is very common. Now we've the average age of the advisor is 58 years old. So this business has gotten so old, there's not a lot of younger planners in the business anymore. And so that donor may actually be in need of more of a financial planning or like what I would say would be a giving plan. So there could be a lot of synergy there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, we are, we are close to being out of time this morning. I have one more question for you and it's one that comes up all the time. And it's this question or more of a concern, a fear, I, I think that fundraisers and a lot of CEOs and nonprofits just are generally uncomfortable engaging with people of, of high net worth or significant means because they feel like 
they're in a different space than those folks. Could you talk a little bit just in general terms, is that a fear that people should hold? How different is someone who, who has significant means from others? Can you just kind of riff on that for us a little bit? I would say often people are successful financially because they were good at one thing. You know, they were dogged. They really spent many years perfecting a craft or an expertise. But a lot of times you'll, you're not going to find those people in expertise with philanthropy or giving, but they are desperate to want to know how to leave a legacy. So even if you know a little bit like what, what you guys talk about every week here, um, I think you can present an idea to that individual that will cause them to pause and say, well, tell me more. I, again, it probably falls more on the nonprofit to get up to speed or maybe again partner and they would have a resource to direct that person to. And that's really how I work with clients is I'll often ask a question, probably something that they didn't consider. And it opens up a conversation to something that we never expected, even when we first sat down. So I hope that gives you something to work with there. I, I think so. I mean, I think what I hear you're saying is your clients are just people too. Even yeah. if they've, they've been successful yeah. somewhere, there's not a reason to be afraid of them. Yeah. And they don't know everything. And you probably know 98% more than they do. They may only understand a small fraction that they get a tax write-off when they give, but they don't know. They could sell a hundred, uh, Roy had mentioned, they could sell a business or they could sell a stock. And now that's what they're going to use for their gifting, but they could have gave 20 to 30% more if they would have just given a stock versus the cash yeah. and paid the taxes on that too. Yeah, that's a great point. Kurt, thank you for being here. Thanks for sharing with us today. Yeah, um, thanks guys. If, if someone uh, wants to learn more about you and the services you provide, what's the best way for people to get in contact with you? Yeah, I think I gave you just my website and that's got a bio. It talks a little bit about my background, what I do as a certified financial planner. So uh, find me online or on LinkedIn. Appreciate you guys again having me on. This has been awesome. Yeah, thanks again for coming on, man. All right. Yeah, you guys take care. You too. Thank you, Kurt. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. Please take a moment to rate this episode on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate this episode, it will help more nonprofit leaders just like you to help find us and get the information that they need to raise more funds for their organization. Thanks again for listening today.